And uh, hey, let's, let's pick this up right at the start of the chapter. We'll read this passage of scripture here. Matthew chapter 5 verse 1. It says this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you, God, um, that your word tells us that in these last days you've spoken to us by your Son. Jesus, whom you have appointed the heir of all things. He is the radiance of your glory, the exact imprint of your being. And it's he who provided purification for sin. He, he gave his life on the cross and your word tells us that he upholds the world by his nature, that he sits on the throne in heaven. And Jesus, this morning we've, We've come to be taught by you. Lord, just like you sat with your disciples on that mountainside and you taught them, we pray that so we would just experience your presence here this morning teaching us. We ask that your Holy Spirit would, would bless this time, anoint it, that you'd be glorified in it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as we come to back to the Gospel of Matthew here, we, we've been talking about the theme that overarches the entire gospel of Matthew and it's one of the kingdom of heaven, the revealing of Jesus as uh, God's king. And in Matthew chapter five through seven, what we call the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus giving the constitution for his kingdom. This is the founding principles for the kingdom of heaven. These are the essentials by which the subjects of his kingdom are to be governed. And we began last week with a look at the Beatitudes where Jesus described uh, what a Christian is to be. Before he gets near the whole, or any, comes anywhere near the discussion on what a Christian should do, he first, firstly talks about what a Christian should be. What is the character of one of his subjects? Because the kingdom of God is first, firstly, the kingdom of heaven is firstly a kingdom of the heart. A spiritual kingdom. An outward form is secondary to the inward rule of King Jesus. And so, uh, 
inward transformation is necessary for the proper outward outward workings of the kingdom of God in our lives. And so it starts with the heart. And so in the Beatitudes, as we spent time looking at those, we, we saw the principles that are, that are there to guide and direct our lives, to lead to a life of happiness in the kingdom of God, the blessed life. And as we move on to look at the, what I'm calling here the kingdom manifesto, Jesus is going to begin to speak about an issue of identity, it's necessary that we realize who Christ has made us to be. What, he is, what we are in Christ. If, I would say if the Beatitudes reveal the character that the Christ follower is to have, what Jesus says next leads us to understand our function and our purpose and what he has called us to in this world. And he said to his disciples, he said this, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and to tra- be trampled under people's feet. The other night we were going to my mom's for dinner and uh, we had hockey practice out in Seashell on Friday night. That's our regular routine with Eli's team. We get off the ice at 6.30, then we bust it back to Gibson's to get here for youth group. And, and, um, and so uh, the the youth group was going to the seashell pool and Jonah was on the ice helping me out and Lisa was picking us up at the rink. We come off the ice at 6.30 and we're going to grandma's for dinner but not the boys. They're going to the pool with the youth group. And so Lisa shows up with uh, that brown McDonald's bag with some meals for the kids, the flail fish meal for Jonah, the chicken nugget meal for Eli. And as we're driving to the rink, uh, Lisa and I were doing what we always do because we're not big McDonald's people but we pilfer fries. <laughs> you know those McDonald's fries? I, I don't know what it is about McDonald's fries. It makes them so delicious, but they've got something, they've got something there in those fries. And um, what makes them good is the salt. I don't know if you've ever gone to McDonald's and ordered fries and had them get handed to you and they're not salted. You ever had that happen? Because I, I don't know what it is. They taste like cardboard when that happens, you know? <laughs> The, gre- the grease has no flavor. And so you take your unsalted fries back to the counter and you say, there's no salt on these fries. I, I want some fresh fries. And they, they give you those nice piping hot fries with the salt. And all of a sudden, that which was cardboard is like delicious. And the grease actually has something delicious about it. It's all about the salt in those McDonald's fries. And salt is a mineral that is indispensable. It's to- a total necessity for life. Your body has to have salt. I remember uh, my grandpa had a brother, his, wa- his wife would not let him have any salt for years and years and years. And he developed all sorts of health problems because they did not have any salt in their house. Your body has to have salt for its heart, for its, for its nervous system, for managing electrolytes and balancing fluids in, its, in the body. And Jesus said this of his followers. He said, you are the salt of the earth. He didn't say be the salt of the earth. He said you are. This is an identity that I have imparted to you, that I've given you a role that you have in the world. You are the salt of the earth. And that is to say, I would say this. The believer, the church, you as a Christian are necessary for the survival of the world. It's not taking it too far to say without you, the world cannot live. 
You are the salt that sustains the earth. I mean, consider, consider the Beatitudes. Remember where they left off? The last one, which is kind of, last two, which are kind of one, is this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and are revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And it's often the case that the world rejects those who are necessary for their survival. In persecuting the disciples of Jesus, the world is in a sense destroying itself. And Jesus did not call himself the salt of the earth. It's interesting. He never said that. We're going to talk in a few minutes about the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And he gave that identity to us. But he never said, I am the salt of the earth. He said, you are the salt of the earth. He he entrusted this work to his followers. And we live in a world that we do not belong to. That's what the scriptures tell us. That means that as followers of Jesus... Uh, We live with the values of another kingdom. But nowhere does the scripture call us in this life that we live in this world to live in in a place of isolation, to isolate ourselves from the world. We live with the attitudes of the kingdom of heaven. We're called to live with the the value system of the kingdom of heaven, but nowhere are we called to to retreat or withdraw from life in this world. That was the era of the monks, of the monastic system, the monastic life. That they separated themselves from society to live a life of quiet contemplation and they rejected the role of being salt, the salt of the earth. And I think there's no better illustration in the scripture than in Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, the prophet prophesies to the people of Israel who are living, Jews who are living in captivity in the city of Babylon. They've been removed from the promised land. Uh, Babylon, the Babylonians had come and, and besieged their city, taken them captive, carried them off to, uh, uh, to the city of Babylon. And, and ultimately we know that God was disciplining the nation of Israel for their idolatry. But in the midst of their captivity, Jeremiah prophesied some amazing things. And one of them is something that you know uh, very well, it's that famous verse from Jeremiah 29, 11, where the Lord says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope, a future and a hope. And in Jeremiah 29, 11, as Jeremiah was prophesying over the children of Israel that were living in captivity and wondering, how do we live in this place that is not where our heart is? We've been removed from the promised land. We belong to another kingdom and yet here we are living in the kingdom of Babylon. How do we navigate all of this? And Jeremiah prophesied and he gave this word of the Lord and he said to the children of Israel, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Even in the face of God's discipline, even in the face of judgment, even in the reality that they were 
Citizens of one kingdom living in the midst of another, God instructed his people to make a life where he had placed them. To marry, to have children, to build houses, to, to plant gardens, to seek the welfare of the city where God has placed them. And I'm, I think when, when Jesus told his disciples they're the salt of the earth, he was saying something very similar. To do the same. And what is our function and what is our purpose? What is the identity that God has given us in the midst of this world? He says this. Jesus says this. You are the salt of the earth. Salt adds flavor. Salt is necessary for the survival of life. Salt is also a preservative. Salt is not just a preservative, but it's an antiseptic. And when Jesus calls us the salt of the earth, he is implying something about this world. The world is in need of preservation. You know, there's many that believe the world is progressing, that the trend is going upwards, that it's all good. That when it comes to the advancement of humanity, wow, we're so awesome. You know, I say, well, there's someone who would say, the only problem with humanity is that the population's too big. We just need to reduce it down or whatever that, whatever some of those crazies think. They, they think, well, things aren't perfect, but generally humanity is on the upward trend. We're getting better. We're greater. We're so awesome. But when Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, he is implying that this earth needs preservation. And the Bible is always taught that sin has placed this world in a state of corruption. The earth is rotten. I mean, the tendency is pollution. Like a rotting piece of meat, the earth smells foul. And it offends the nostrils of its creator because of sin. That's what the Bible says, that the world is sinful, that it's in a state of rebellion against God. And as a result of sin, as a result of the fall, the world in a general sense is rotting. I mean, think about it. It's rotting. It's in a state of death. A state of death. According to the Bible, that is the right view of humanity without God. There is no upward tendency. The opposite is true. You know, it's like leaving a steak on the counter. It won't evolve into a cow. <laughs> Ooh. It will sit and it will fester and germs will multiply Infective organisms will grow, it will rot, and there will be a stench, and there will be an odor. And life in this world is the same. It's not uh, trending up. And as those who follow Jesus Christ, we should not be surprised by the evil that we see in the world. I, I, I think the better reality is to say something like this, that, it, it, that it's surprising actually to see how that the world actually is as good as it is. I mean, think of the accounts of the flood in Noah's day or think about the biblical account of Sodom and Gomorrah in Abraham's day. And they tell us that the trend of mankind is downward unless there is something to preserve it. And God will bring judgment and he will bring destruction. And human hearts don't like to hear it, but the reality is, is this, is that apart from Jesus Christ, Apart from Jesus Christ, optimism for the future is unscriptural. 
Apart from Jesus Christ, optimism for the future is falsified by the facts of history. Christ is our hope. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, it says in Hebrews, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on heaven. And Jesus sat down to teach his disciples on that mountain and he said, You are the salt of the earth. We are the preservative. We are the antiseptic for a world that is infected with sin. Christ Jesus has made us his salt to deal with the decay of sin. And that is the principal function of salt, to preserve. This week at our our Koinonia group at our house, I really enjoyed the conversation. We have an awesome Koinonia group. You should all be jealous. And uh, we, had, we had fun, and we were, we were talking about the Beatitudes, obviously, just wrestling through uh, that section of Scripture. And one of the things we did was just go through the Beatitudes and, and ask the, the question, what is the opposite of each of these attitudes? You know, What is the opposite of poverty of spirit? What is the opposite of meekness? What is the opposite of mourning over sin and in our descriptions of the opposite I mean we basically describe the character that is glorified by the value system of this world the value system that glorifies self that pursues sin that uses strength to promote itself that hungers and thirsts not for righteousness but for unrighteousness that is impure in heart And Jesus' teaching from the Beatitudes tells us that we are not to be like the world. A Christian is is someone who is essentially different from the world as salt is to popcorn. Or as salt is different compared to the meat into which it is rubbed. Or as salt is different from the wound into which it is placed. We're different. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we should not just be different, but I would say this, we should glorify God in the midst of the difference. We should celebrate that we're different. We should take pleasure in the fact that Jesus Christ has called us to be different, that Jesus Christ has called us to be unique in the world. You know, there's just this trend in Christianity in North America where we we don't want to be seen as different. We don't want to look different from the world. We want to blend in. But the Christian is called to be separate and unique. There is to be something about our lives that marks us, that is obvious to everyone else around us. That's clearly recognizable by anyone who would examine our lives. And we should not expect the world to understand that. Just to go, there's something different about those people. You know, I hope you found yourself walking into situations and just your presence has an effect the lunchroom at work, some conversation. You enter, you don't even say a word and people start to modify their language. They change their tone. They they stop backbiting or they stop and apologize for cussing or for using the Lord's name in vain. That's the effect of salt. 
just by being a follower of Jesus, because, because of the character of the Holy Spirit and what he is doing in your life, you affect evil that manifests itself around you. You walk in and God just begins to preserve the whole situation because you are the salt of the earth. In your home, in your workplace, on the sports field, in your hobbies, with your neighbors, wherever you are, the kingdom of God is present and salt begins to affect things and it changes the flavor and it preserves that which was rotting. You are the salt of the earth. You know, Jesus didn't even give that identity to his church. He gave that identity to us as individuals. And I often think of his church, I think, wow, you know, it's, I always find it so fascinating just to consider how God has sprinkled his people like salt on fries through a community. We don't all live on the same street. We don't all have the same jobs. We don't all have the same circles of influence. God has sprinkled us as a preservative in this community. And that's why we should take seriously and consider these words of Jesus who said, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. See, everything needs to be seasoned with salt. But once salt has lost its flavor, it can't be resalted. Everything else is seasoned by salt, but salt cannot be seasoned by salt. When it has no flavor, there is no hope of recovery. That's what Jesus is saying. And if we act according to the Beatitudes, I would say this, we are salt. If they are the principles, the, the constitution, our life manifesto, we are salt. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. Verse 14, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And I would say this about this second statement. After he says you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Once again, it's not you are to be the light of the world. They are already the light of the world. Because Jesus has called them to be a light seen by men. And Jesus doesn't say, you have light, like they possess something. Like it's like carrying a flashlight in the darkness. It's not something in your hand. He actually says, you are light. You, you can't even remain hidden even if you try. And the fact that Jesus calls us the light of the world, well that also tells us something about the world. If salt, if we're the salt of the earth, that tells us the earth is rotting. If we're the light of the world, it tells us that this world is a dark place. That it's in darkness. And the world would argue that with us. Say knowledge is increasing. You know, I think about the, our world and kind of what's going on right now. I mean, we live in a time in history where the growth of knowledge, technological advancement is like, totally unprecedented. It's becoming obsolete all the time. It's impossible to keep up. Uh, people tend to, you know, have some opinion that we're, we're reaching a time where there'll be peace and there'll, there'll be harmony. Humanity will accomplish it. The world believes itself to be increasingly enlightened and we actually see as the world claims its enlightenment, it questions the reality of God more. It questions 
uh, the authority of his word. It questions the authority of God. What was called enlightenment in the 15th and 16th century, now the world celebrates as science, which just means knowledge. Science is essentially the accumulating of knowledge in whatever field of study. Knowledge brings light, we would say. It brings understanding, and the world is accumulating knowledge, and as it accumulates knowledge, it seeks to cast off the word of God, and it seeks to cast off knowledge of his holy one, but the Bible makes it clear the world is in a state of darkness. Though the world may accumulate knowledge, though the growth of knowledge may be exponential, a closer examination of the world reveals darkness. Knowledge of things has increased. You know, all the technology I think of, things that your phone will do and your car will do and soon you and I will be obsolete because there will be robots to do it all and there's mechanical knowledge, scientific knowledge, there's biolo biolo biological knowledge. <laughs> uh, they increase and yet you look at the world and though the world is growing in this knowledge, the world is just failing at life. So many people, their lives are tragic failures. Their personal lives are a mess. I look at our culture and probably more than any culture in the world, you need substance in Canada just to get through a day. Alcohol, weed, prescription medicines, this, that, whatever it is, substance to get through. And it almost seems the more knowledge increases, the less competent the world is at just making simple things last, like marriage, like family. And when you come to the most basic fundamental issues surrounding problems in life and in living, I would say this, the world, no matter what its knowledge is, is terrible. It's in darkness. It has no direction. It has no map. It has no course. And with all of its knowledge, the world cannot explain the condition of man. The world cannot diagnose the spiritual problem of man apart from God. I think of the very first act of creation was what? That that God came to darkness and he said, let there be light. And when the light appeared, it exposed the darkness because that is the role of light. You are the light of the world. Light shows the way out of darkness. I think of uh, the Christian man or woman. You know, they may not be extraordinarily brilliant in an intelligence sort of way, they may be kind of ordinary. On the intelligence scale, they might be below average. Take myself, for instance, below average. <laughs> may never have studied philosophy, may not be an expert or schooled in anything, may not have knowledge of scientific things. You may have sort of pathetic skills when it comes to technology, but a Christian man or woman who knows Jesus Christ knows more than the person who's the greatest expert that is not a Christian. See, the world in all of its wisdom does not know God. I think of the words of Jesus who said, but whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. 
Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I am the resurrection and the life. Because the Bible tells us, Jesus taught that that the things that appear to be utterly foolishness to men are the wisdom of God. You're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. And that statement is applied to the ordinary follower of Jesus. Anyone who's called on his name. You don't have to have it all figured out to be the light of the world. Because this identity is not something we hold in our hands. It's an identity that is imparted to us. It's given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the order of what Jesus says here is important. Firstly, he says, you're the salt of the earth. And then he says, you're the light of the world. And in considering this in, in, in light of, I was thinking about evangelism, sharing your faith, and I just kind of felt like, oh, felt like a bit of a revelation to me. I don't know, I'm a slow learner. But, uh, you know, often Christians try to be light without being salt. And I would say uh, this to you as I've been stewing on it, uh, and I would ask this question, actually, first. Where is God using you to be salt? Where is the place that when you walk in, conversation changes? And I would say this to you, that if you can identify that place, then let me suggest to you that that is also the place that God is calling you to shine the light of the gospel. The fact that those who do not know Christ are affected by the salt of your presence means that when they ask a question about faith, you have 100% green light to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to shine the light. The salt makes way for the light. And and we need to live as salt so that we can shine as light. I mean, it's not good when our our lips speak more than our lives. Our, Our lives need to speak and then it provides opportunity for our lips to speak. And light exposes what's in the darkness. That's why the Pharisees hated Jesus. They had the outward form down down pat, you know. An outward expression of religion, they could not have been more righteous. They had it down. I mean, if you looked at them, I I mean, we, we make fun of the Pharisees in our culture and in our day and age, but it's like, you know, it's like us making fun of Billy Graham or Chuck Swindoll. These men were considered holy, but when Jesus, the light of the world, came on the scene, his purity both on the inside and the outside, his holiness, his purity made them see themselves for what they really were and it revealed darkness inside of them. And rather than repent, they chose not to let it affect them. They chose not to turn towards repentance. Rather, they chose hate. They chose murder. They chose to let darkness reign in them. And when I think of all of the troubles in this world, all of the darkness that there is, it is directly related to man's estrangement from God. And the light that we have as Christians, the light that we are as Christians is the answer for this world, is the answer for darkness. Man has so been made that God cannot truly, uh, uh, sorry, man is, so been made that he cannot truly live unless he has relationship with God through Jesus Christ. 
You are made like that. You're made by God. You were made for God. You cannot truly live unless you come to Jesus Christ. And every difficulty in this world can be traced back to the same source. It's sin. It's selfishness. It's self-seeking. And Christianity alone, the Bible alone, Jesus alone is the explanation for the condition of man and the prescription for healing. The condition is sin and the prescription is Jesus. And the gospel makes us face ourselves. The gospel makes a person face himself. It forces you to look in the mirror and, and to look in the mirror and to look in the face of Jesus will reveal a heart and re- will reveal a life to a person that, that has fallen short of the glory of God. The problem of darkness is the fruit of sin, the fruit of sin that lies within. I remember uh, a couple years ago, or actually a few years back now, Kevin Mason and I went to the U2 concert in Vancouver and um, we had an awesome time. We went with a couple other guys, a couple buddies of his. And um, we had some time to hang out before the concert and we were grabbing a burger and wandering around downtown and we were having this conversation that I really enjoyed about, hey, why don't more people respond to the gospel? I mean, what is it about that? Like, why don't we just see more people responding to the message of Jesus? And the group of guys I, I was with uh, represented an, uh, uh, different schools of theological background, and so we were coming at it from different angles, and everybody was given their two cents, and I, I'm typically outgunned in those situations. And um, there are many ways that you could answer that question. Why don't we see more people coming to faith in Jesus Christ? Typically, as Christians, at the start of a discussion like that, we start talking about things like free will versus sovereign grace. We, we state the merits of, you know, Calvinism and Arminianism, and we have these different lines that we come from. But as far as I can tell in the scripture, Jesus actually tells us why that doesn't happen. He said this, that men love darkness rather than light. That's the simple answer. That when men are confronted with the gospel and they do not surrender their lives to his rule, it's because they love darkness more than they love light. And to those who are in darkness, Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be born again. The the problem is not accumulating more knowledge. If we could just have more science to back it up. The the problem is not accumulating more knowledge. A man does not need more light. What he needs is a nature that loves light and hates darkness. But many love darkness and they hate light. And there is a way to God and it's through Jesus Christ. Jesus came from heaven to earth to seek and save those who are lost. Those who are lost in darkness. And Jesus illuminates the darkness. He calls us the light of the world. Through us, he exposes it and he reveals that there is a way out of darkness to God through the Son. Jesus is the way. In Jesus, there is forgiveness of sin. And Jesus makes us new men and women. And this is what I would say about Jesus Jesus changes our nature. We're born again, new creations. 
He gives us new life. He makes us new creatures so that we love light and we begin to hate darkness. A nature that hates darkness. So again in verse 14 he says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. See the whole function and purpose of light is to give light. Really simple. You know a lamp is lit so that it can illuminate a house. If we're Christians, I would say, you can't hide. You're light. There's no such thing, actually, as a closet Christian. I was thinking about this. There's no thing. There's no such thing. I mean, if you're in the closet, there's light coming out from underneath the door. It's just, that's what's happening. And the contrast between us and those who know Jesus and those who do not know Jesus is self-evident. I don't know if you realize that about yourself. It's totally evident to others that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. You are the light of the world. Just as in your home, it's self-evident where the lights are because they shine and they drive back darkness. It's foolish to to turn on a light and then cover it up. So it is with your, your faith. You cannot conceal what Christ has done for you. It transformed your nature. You were in darkness and now you are light. And if you think that you can hide it, the only person you're fooling is yourself. I mean, if you are the real deal, if Jesus Christ has changed your life, you cannot hide it. It's interesting, you know, Jesus said this, that that salt can lose its saltiness. And if that happens, it's worthless. And the same is true. You know what? I don't have a collection of burnt out light bulbs at home. You know what I do with them? Maybe not so much now, but when you're younger, right? Smash them. That's what you did with a, with a burnt out light bulb. I, I throw them in the trash. They're useless. Useless. And someone who claims to be a follower of Christ, but is only one in religious, you know, garb like a Pharisee, only one in the formal sense is you, They're useless to the kingdom of God. As the New Testament tells us elsewhere, that they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. The electricity isn't on. It's burnt out. A form of godliness, but they deny its power. And many of us have observed that, you know, happen to individuals or to churches where we see the salt lose its flavor. The light goes out. And because we know that that's a reality, I I would say that that with that in mind, we should consider, you know, any desire that is in us that, that, that wants to hide the light, that wants to put it under a bushel, that wants to put a basket over it, is not just a contradiction, but it is dangerous. It's dangerous to the long term health of your walk with Jesus Christ. And if you have the tendency to put the light under a basket, I would tell you, you need to do a spiritual inventory to walk through the Beatitudes and say, is this, am I carrying the hard attitudes of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven?
You know, in the days when Jesus sat here on this mountain and he called his disciples the light of the world, it wasn't in the days of electricity and light bulbs. Lights were a whole lot different in those days. And there were two things necessary for a lap. It was the oil and the wick. And having one without the other was, was useless. The oil was essential. The wick was essential. And the oil just reminds us of the work of the Holy Spirit. And the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus Christ. When he comes and lives in us and indwells us and graces us with his presence and graces us with his gifts, with his anointing, with his power, when he imparts to us the divine life of God, the Holy Spirit is always working to glorify Jesus Christ, making us the lights of the world. And when I think of the oil and its, necessary and its necessity for the lamp, the question is this, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? And I'm not talking in, you know, a charismatic way, though I believe in the charismatic gifts. I mean, I'm just talking about daily filling with the presence of the Holy Spirit. You know, Paul said, be not drunk of wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And are you inviting the presence of the Spirit to guide you, to empower you daily, praying that he would manifest his power in your life? You are the light of the world. What's the condition in the oil in your lamp? We need the Spirit to fill us. You know, the Christian life is never static. A couple of years ago, we were at, we had our, you know, our annual church camp out at West Resort. So stoked to go again. It's like a highlight of the year all the time. And uh, Adam and I, Adam DeYoung and I hopped on, uh, he had two paddle boards, inflatable paddle boards, stand-up paddle boards. And so we hopped on those things and we went around the corner from the camp and we started paddling towards the Skookumchuck. It was really smart. And, um, and we were having great fun. And then we decided, you know, we better not go any further. Like, this is probably not a good idea. I mean, we didn't even go that far. Like, max, like 10 minutes. Maybe we went 15 minutes towards the chuck. And so we turned those boards around. And we quickly realized that um, we'd been paddling with the tide to our backs. And um, now we were paddling against the tide. And what had taken us... 10 minutes or maybe 15 minutes took us like 30 minutes. I want to say it took us 45 minutes. All I know is I was sore for two days. And uh, I felt these muscles that I didn't know existed for many years. And, and the worst part of the whole thing was is that I couldn't rest on the paddle because the second I took one stroke off, one stroke, we started going backwards. <laughs> it was awful. You'd, you'd, you'd Paddle and paddle and paddle and gain some ground and then take a stroke off and you'd lose three lengths of your board. And in Christianity and following Jesus, you cannot rest on the paddle. You can't rest on the oars. Jesus said in his Beatitudes that we're to hunger and to thirst for righteousness, to be filled with the Spirit, to ask the Lord every day for that filling of the Spirit. We need the oil. And the wick has to be trimmed. You know, I would say this, and 
Regards to the trimming of the wick, remind yourself often of, of, of the Beatitudes. Be reminded daily that you're poor in spirit. I haven't arrived. Mourn for your sin. Never forget that what we are, we are by the grace of God and not by something that's found in us. It's the work of God in us. You know, when you're a parent, often you ask your kids to do something and it's, it's amazing how they'll like just push that. They'll just push that. You, you'll say, you know, hey, uh, can you do this or I need you to do this or come here? And it's like they don't hear you. <laughs> they ignore you. They uh, have selective hearing and they, and they don't listen. And so you ask again. And then they ignore you. And then you ask again and they can't hear you. And this cycle just goes on and on. Is any parents here? You understand that cycle. And, and then what happens is finally dad raises his voice. Gets a little angry. And, and, then, and then what does the kid do? The kid acts all shocked that they're in trouble. And, and why, you know, dad's all mad. What happened, dad? Are you kidding me? I've asked you 10 times, you know, to do this or to do that. And they've chosen to ignore their dad's voice and then they're shocked when they're in trouble. And the Christian life can be the same way. Right, Jonah? <laughs> Just kidding, buddy. He's such an awesome young man. The Christian life can be lived the same way where we, where we make this habit of walking as close to the line as we can. What, dad? I can't hear you. Uh, I'm playing video games right now. I'm distracted. And making a habit of walking the line drawn in the sand is not healthy in the Christian life. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And I would say to you this this morning, don't be afraid to live like it. Don't be afraid to stand out for Jesus. Don't be afraid to be different for the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus says, and we're going to close right here, in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When we live as salt of the earth, when we live as the light of the world, others, men and women, Young and old are drawn to Christ, you know, like a fly attracted to the light. And our good works point them to Jesus. And Jesus says this, as they see salt in your life, as they see your good works, as they see your light shining before men, they won't glorify you. They'll glorify your Father who is in heaven. Isn't that what we want? for the world to see Christ in us, for them to see Jesus. May he make us more salty. May we shine brighter. Let's pray this morning. I invite the worship team to come.